This is the word of the Lord, amen? And a difficult word. Good job, love. That was a great job uh, reading. Um, for my introduction this morning, I, I, don't, I don't love it. It was a hard one to put together. Uh, but while we were singing, I just want to maybe say something before my introduction because um, I, I mean it. I, I'm really thankful for the Lord's day. Like I'm thankful for a time to worship with you guys. And, you know, uh, someone once said that hymns help us feel doctrine. I read that one time online. Hymns help us feel doctrine. And I'll tell you, me and Blake, we, we try to, when we plan the services, we try to start with doctrine and the Word of God, and then we plan our services out of what the text is. Uh, it was uh, by some design, but mostly sovereignty, that we sing such heritage hymns today. Uh, we will close within Christ alone. That's a 20-year-old kind of heritage, though, hymn for us. It's fitting because our passage, as you just heard read, is a bit of, <coughs> excuse me, of a Christian heritage passage. You know, it's a summary, uh, you know, with all these church leaders gathered in the book of Acts. And I want to encourage us uh, to remember that, you know, God is building his church, right? He really is. Well, now on to my normal intro. I just wanted to I just want to take a moment just be encouraged with all of you of how encouraging it is to get to gather on the Lord's Day. Uh, and maybe I'm also making note because this is the one text of the Bible that we actually like kind of make the argument uh, prescriptively for our meeting on Sundays. And so we'll get to that in a minute. Let me cough. <laughs> Excuse me. The book of Acts uh, as a literary genre is a historical narrative. So it's a history of the early church and then it's a narrative. It tells stories. Some passages focus on relaying to us the actual history in a bulk fashion. Uh, and it does that for you know, the sake of covering what happened you know, moment by moment in these, in these years. Some other passages focus on specific stories in that larger history, and they do that for the sake of clarity of conviction, for theological, you know, explanations and such. It, it, you know, it maintains a, a quick and a sweeping pace on, on the larger movements at times. Uh, that way you know where you are at in history as you read it. It drills into certain moments to communicate the theology, you know, the knowledge of God at other times, you know, certain passages. Our passage does both today. So our passage has both elements of historical narrative. I mean, and right in the middle of a, of a sweeping explanation of the history of Paul's life at this point, you know, as a missionary to the Gentiles, is someone who, who really would have made headline news in the New Testament church, you know, uh, Eutychus. Eutychus, like in this story of Eutychus falling asleep, falling out of a window that you just heard read, dying, and then being raised to life by Paul. Um, it's pretty incredible, right? We get a snapshot into a story in the middle of this greater movement as this passage is trying to get us along. Uh, thinking about, you know, that story, have you, have you ever been the center of something or of some moment that you had every intention of not being the center of it, but you're just like you're an observer, you wanted to be an observer, an observer. You, know, you just wanted to observe and participate, and then suddenly all the eyes uh, are on you. Uh, that would have been Eutychus here. Uh, Eutychus fell asleep during a church conference, basically, uh, on the Lord's Day, and, and as they're gathering with the church of Troas, uh, but they really have some predominant leaders among them. Uh, a real problem for most church gatherings, you know, is people fall asleep a lot. 
Uh, that's a real thing. Uh, it happens, sadly, I'll say, even here at our church. I've seen some of you sleepy eyed before. One guest we had one time just laid out on the couch we used to keep down here and uh, he just passed out in his wife's lap. Uh, people do fall asleep in church, but rarely do they fall out of the window, die, and then someone raises them back to life. Uh, that does not happen as much, but it does in our text. Uh, this guy, uh, Eutychus, he could have remained unnamed, Right? Uh, but instead, his name has gone down in the records of all records, you know, the Bible. Uh, this will never uh, come back void. This scripture will be forever touted. We will, you know, have the word forever. We'll be with Jesus. And the history of the Bible, right? Eutychus makes it into it as the guy who fell asleep in church, uh, which is, you know, something we're going to talk about. I feel like Eventually, one day in heaven, uh, for those who believe in Christ, you know, and have, have trusted him, we're going to come across this young man, you know, uh, Eutychus. And uh, he's going to introduce himself as Eutychus, and we're just going to chuckle and roll our eyes, you know, and he's going to roll his eyes like, you know, I'm forever known as the, the young youth that, that, you know, everyone was happy to see him grow in the Lord, uh, is what we're going to find out as they left. But, but man, he was struggling. What's the main point of today? Is it falling asleep in church? No, it's not. Uh, it's not. Uh, because, really, Eutychus is actually not the main point of this text. Um, you see, the main point of this text is to show us a transition in the Apostle Paul's life and ministry. Uh, Paul is really transitioning from years, um, certainly over a decade. Most, uh, most scholars are saying 20 to 25 years of, of Paul intentionally church planting. Just finished a three-year stint of work in that in Ephesus in the region of Asia. And, uh, and, and the point of this passage is to get us from that section of, of, Mark, of Paul's life to then move us to uh, Jerusalem. And that is something that the Spirit of God has made clear. Our text, though, does have three main movements that are going to serve as our outline. So if you're taking notes, it'll be movement one, two, and three. Uh, movement one is first... Uh, first Church Planners Conference. That's what I'm going to call it. Uh, you know, this is the, a first conference of sorts, it seems like, uh, certainly for church planters. Movement two is going to be the danger of sleeping in church. So we're going to talk, uh, talk about Eutychus. And then movement three in this passage is Paul's plans to get to Jerusalem. And so let's try to understand this. You know, we preach through books of the Bible here. This is a, a time, a passage that probably gets overlooked a lot, but there is a lot here. We need to, you know, get into this together and study it. So movement one. Um, what I'm saying is the, the first church planners conference. The context is Paul's leaving the coastal city of Ephesus. Uh, if your Bible you know, has maps, now is the time to turn to your, your Bible with maps, okay? Um, you know, without having one, just imagine you know, this, this passage, this first seven verses here, uh, kind of takes us, um, you just imagine like a road trip across the, like a 350-mile area of the Great Lakes of the United States, right? If someone was to like just like spend time, sometimes, you know, walking somewhere, sometimes boating, uh, you know, sometimes driving uh, for possibly six months to, you know, a year to a year and a half. Uh, we don't know how long because Luke doesn't need us to know how long at this point. But for a long period of time, this is how Paul is traveling in these seven verses, so we're covering that much time and all these places that he's going. Um, and so the context, you know, you know, try, imagine that trip you took, right? Like you took six months, a year and a half, all around the Great Lakes area, 350 miles, seeing things, doing things, you know, and then imagine trying to recount that to someone in two paragraphs. 
and then put your and you put your favorite story that happened in that time in the middle of it, right? That's what our text is. So our text is like you know all over the place. One story about Eutychus, and then all over the place to a point. Well, the first section, you know, you see here um, that really, you know, it, it's it's all of these uh, listed people. After we kind of learn, after Paul leaves Ephesus, what he does, and you've got these pastors, these these these, these representatives. Um, I'm going to give you a lot of background because it'll help us to really, I think, apply some things. Um, so, you know, what's happening here? We know that Luke, who wrote this book, in Acts 24, verse 17, he's going to talk about including that Paul was traveling to Jerusalem, you know, where this text ends, with alms. With alms, Luke says, to give to the church of Jerusalem. In other words, a lump sum of money. Okay, Paul's traveling with that, and Luke includes that. And that's really all we know from Luke. So we should know that if, I'm, if we're just going to preach this like it is, you know, we, we don't get there yet. Um, but because we do get there, and we are studying this book together, we also know that, th- that this gift that's mentioned in chapter 24 to come it's referenced uh, by Paul when he writes in Romans 15 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So if you're taking notes about this conference, you know, like there are, there's information in the letters Paul writes, Romans 15, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Now, here's why I'm bringing that up. Both of the books I just mentioned to you, 2 Corinthians and Romans 15, are likely written during the time that our sermon covers today. So these books were written by Paul And those letters that he wrote tell us more about the purpose of Paul's travels during this time. Because all we know is we study verse 1, 2, and 3 is that, you know, he was in Ephesus. He went up to Macedonia. That's a huge area up where Philippi is. And when he had gone through those regions and he had given them much encouragement, so he's encouraging churches, he comes to Greece, which is like hundreds of miles south of that. And it's this huge area that would include Corinth and Sincrea and so many of these other churches. And when he's around them, you know, what happens? A plot's made. He wants to go to Syria. That's all the way back over to Antioch. He doesn't go. So instead, he goes back up to Macedonia to eventually make it over to where he worships with these brothers in Troas, which is like 250 miles again. See what I'm saying? Well, if you need some more details, one of the reasons we learn that he's doing this, Romans 15 specifically says in verse 22, Paul writes to the Romans, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. He wants to go to, the, to Rome. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, our text, Paul has no more room for work, he says. So spirit has bound him. He's not going to be doing this church planning effort. Something else is new. He says, look, there's, there's no longer any, work, any room for work in these regions. And since I have longed for many years to come to you, Romans, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. So Paul thinks he's going to go past Rome to Spain, which history tells us he won't. And to be helped on my journey there to Spain by you. Now listen to this. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, our text, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. That's our alms. For Macedonia and Achaia, that's our area, Macedonia, and Achaia is a big term for uh, Corinth and those places that he's visited, okay? For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution to the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. 
Okay, so these churches that he's seeing in these first three verses of our text, they are putting together money. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, if you want to go read it, why we say God loves a cheerful giver, the context of that verse is these people are giving even out of their poverty because they are so burdened about Jerusalem. They know, they know that Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and us. <laughs> and they say, if the gospel came through them and they're hurting, let's give. They gave so much so we could have the gospel. Let us give a little bit of what we have to give back to them. Make sense? And so, and so this traveling, moving eventually to our seven-day you know, time in Troas that we're getting to, it's all coming together outside of our text this morning. Now, I'll bring all that up because point one is, again, we're trying to understand these men. Well, this money from these churches, it would have been a lot for one man to carry, Paul, especially traveling in, in Roman you know, occupied cities. Uh, if you're carrying that kind of money, you could be you know, killed and they could take it. So the more men you have traveling with you is maybe you take it would help. Also to carry it, to actually physically carry it. It's not a bank and a credit card system, right? They have to actually carry these gifts. And so they have to take these, these, uh, this money. And so hence these other leaders come. There's two purposes of why these men are gathered. One, they're gonna go with Paul to Jerusalem uh, and they're gonna say, hey, here's the gifts from the churches we represent. And then secondly, and I think is most coolest, is they're going to be able to testify to the church in Jerusalem and say, hey, here I am, Sopater. And, and a church was planted among the Bereans. And I'm, in the, I'm from the church, you know, the first Baptist church of Berea, right? And I'm here to say I was baptized in the name of Christ and I followed Jesus and God has grown me through this man, Paul, and his discipleship. And, and we are there, brothers and sisters, and we are preaching the gospel. And Sopater would be able to do that to Jerusalem and and. Uh, and, you know, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, you know, and, and, and the Asians, you know, Tychicus and Trophimus, right? Luke, who now we've picked up we passages, right, who was left in Philippi, Luke would also be able to say, and I've been left in Philippi while, you know, back with Paul. I mean, that's the point. So they're taking money, and they're taking their testimony, and so they gather. We also know that Paul has been told by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem back in Acts 19.21, right? And so this, 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 this passage is served in that way. Why does Luke not mention these things until later? Because remember, all I told you was we got Acts 19, I'm supposed to go to Jerusalem. And it's not till 24 that he talks about this gift in detail. <coughs> well, I think here's the answer. Acts is transitioning and Luke is summarizing that transition and he's not giving us details just yet. He wants to show that there really is like one quick purpose going on, and it's that God is, uh, you know, now wanting to show that the, the, the plans that he has for this greatest uh, missionary to the Gentiles. By the end of this first section in verse 6, as you can see, Paul and these men are finally gathered uh, for however they all got there for seven days in, in Troas. Um, there is, you know, one last thing to note here from our first movement uh, in our passage, uh, before we apply, maybe. Uh, these men represent a completed work of God in each of those areas that they're from. In many ways, you should think of them as pastors and leaders from the actual churches where Paul has planted. And so in one sense, think of how warm of a reunion this must have been as they are there. These men, uh, you know, this group is a miraculous feat of God. It's just a miraculous thing that they are all there. 
and we shouldn't rush past it. We don't have time to get into the details of each of them, and I've told you some, but you know, there's this statement in Acts 1-8 that we've been unpacking through this whole series. Jesus said that you know, his disciples would be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And here we go. This is a fulfillment of this verse where these church leaders are coming together. And if you're like me, I mean, you can, I cannot imagine the sweetness of this fellowship for these seven days. In many ways, I think behind and under these verses um, are our tears shed in joy and in pain through days of persecution as they reflected on how the gospel came to, to places like Thessalonica and places like Corinth and like Ephesus. Memories of late nights they probably had after the riot calmed down and they just stayed around to talk about it. Or memories that they share about the stonings and the life after them in Lystra. Teachings as God was making so clear in all the synagogues they went into that Jesus over and over again was the fulfillment the inbringing of the Gentiles, how much they celebrated. Can you imagine the meals and the seven days that they had here as they talked about the controversy that almost stopped the movement, you know, when there was a worry about should Gentiles follow Jewish law? They probably had that conversation over some delicious bacon, right? To the glory of God. They had love for one another, I imagine, behind this that, that comes through despite their discouragements. I bet they sat there and they reflected on how awesome it was. I bet they talked about, had a discussion about demons around a campfire. I bet they did that because they have seen demons flee in the presence of so many, you know, like out and, 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 and Jesus filling what was once an addiction and a hatred of, uh, for God, addiction to sin, hatred for God. You know, that's what this seven days, I imagine, happens. They take stock of loss along the way. They probably wept together of some who have perished, taking joy together. The weight of these seven days at this reunion is, is kind of behind the details I've given you. I've tried to give you some to paint, to not let you rush past these seven verses and all these proper nouns. Let me ask you a question, Christian, this morning. Are you living your life in such a way by faith that you could put together a seven-day time with people of like-minded faith? Could you fill a week with memory, with hope, with weeping, and with joy? If you can, praise God and think of it and do it and, and investigate it. If you can't, be expectant of what it means to mature and grow up in Christ. Don't have such a short, like, you know, nearsighted view of what God will do. Have a long view of how God will be faithful over time. You know, it's a famous quote said that most men underestimate what they can do in 10 years and they overestimate what they can do in one year. That's not just men, right? That's, that's, a, that's a condition of us as humans. We're so now, we can't see, and yet here's God after 20 to 25 years of doing what he said he would do and some men pausing on the Lord's day to say, let's talk about it. Let's share in it. Let's rejoice in it together. That the Lord gives you long life, and I pray he does. Expect such weeks as this one. Can you imagine what it was like to have this week and then leave it? Well, they, which they will, right? They all go. So most of them will go with Paul, but not all of them. And most scholars think that there's more people even here you know, at, at Troas. It's such a central point uh, on the map. And, and, and so imagine when they leave it. You know, they probably lament it in one sense. That'll never be like that again. 
But that's okay, because, man, it gives them energy to go. These men missed nothing. They were graciously given seven days to enjoy one another. Luke shows us that. And that's really the, the, the best conclusion I can kind of give from the first movement of this passage, right? I mean, you, you need to see these men are gathered there. They're church planters in a lot of sense, but they didn't know that. <laughs> they were just Christians that received the gospel and obeyed Christ's commands, and then God has, has done a work, right? Let us be people like them. Movement two, what did they actually do? Because then, you know, the story, verse 7 through 12, now we zoom in. We get that specific thing, okay? The danger of sleeping in church. That's this title for me of this movement. Uh, verse 7 through 12 is a story selected by Luke to give us, I think, some humor and major encouragement. Have you ever fallen asleep during church? Question? Yeah, you probably have. Okay, kids, appreciate the honesty there. Me too. Well, listen, wake up, O sleeper. You need to realize how dangerous that practice could be. A quick side note, verse 7 at the start here, it's one of the main verses that we, and I mean the church, uh, the Christian you know, uh, church, used to argue for worship on the Lord's day rather than the Sabbath. So Sabbath was on Saturday, considered the last day of the week, right? You've worked Sunday through, through Friday, rest commanded on the Saturday where Jesus was uh, resting for us in the grave, right? He was dead. Uh, as we try to keep our Sabbaths holy and fail, uh, God, the most holy one, was laid in the grave on the Sabbath. And yet he did not stay dead, as we all stay dead in our efforts to rest, right? Jesus rose up to promise eternal rest, and he did that on Sunday, right? So that is a term that encompasses the Lord's day. Uh, that is a term that encompasses uh, Sunday, you know, because our Lord rose. He got up out of the grave. Now notice, they're gathered to break bread. Do you see that in verse 7? Break bread is a catch-all term that encompasses the activity of remembering Jesus together in the Lord's Supper, like he said to do. Something we're going to do. That's what these elements are over here for, right? This is something that they would do regularly, as often as they could. And, and they did it, you know, to, uh, to declare that this is God's day. Now, that's a side note. Now, notice that if poor old Eutychus didn't fall asleep and he didn't fall out the window, this passage uh, it is capturing the devotion that these men have to preaching and to gathering around the word, right? So we could actually, you know, look at this passage and, uh, you know, Eutychus helps anybody who struggles to stay awake in church or who struggles to love God's word. He helps us because he's there, right? So I'm not going to beat the guy up. I'm glad he's there. But you know what he's not? he's not? He's not characteristic of the rest of these men. You notice that? I mean, that's, this is crazy, but listen, these men have a voracious desire to meet God in his word. And they see, oh man, I'm here with other hungry, like lion, pulpiteer, preaching men Paul being chief, and he's the chief that's really discipled all of us, and we're not going to waste these hours. And so they're just like, normal gathering, two hours? No. Like, let's, let's do it all day. Let's do it all night. And they do. So, you know, these are church leaders. Many of them have been discipled, trained by Paul. They're like, look, we'll sleep later. Let us together break the bread, right? Let's really get into the word of God. And that's what they're doing. Paul is going, you know, on and on, the text says, right? You know, there's a story I'll tell you, and you probably know it. Uh, David Platt, 
uh, was a missionary, uh, really a, a pastor still equipping missionaries, <coughs> excuse me, and he went to Indonesia, I, I believe. I, I, I looked it up, and, and it was Indonesia and a couple of other Asian countries of secret origin, so we don't know the ones that are n- unnamed. But, you know, he brought back to America an idea that a lot of people were doing when I was in college called Secret Church. And it was birthed out of a story where David was going to places uh, like I prayed about in the prayer of petition today. Uh, and this was 2010, 11, 12, um, where, where I, he, was, he was in 13, 14, where he was doing this stateside because in the, in the early 2000s when he had gone to these places, there was one country in particular where they were gathering and he was there to teach them. And some of these people who were extremely persecuted, like they met with David at, at great risk of their own lives uh, to die for the sake of following Jesus. They were local leaders and they showed up and that David was teaching them one session. But rather than do what the little conference they were trying to do would normally do, like go and do some other activities, they just said, stop it. We need you to teach us the entire Bible before we go back to our places. And so David Platt tells the story of opening in Genesis and just going through the whole Old Testament for like eight hours. And these these hungry, poor, broken, really persecuted Asian Christians are just consuming it, burning down notes as they try to write down, knowing that the burden is on them to go back and teach their people. And they're just pouring into it. And and there's times where they stop and they they pray some of the things because the Spirit of God is just teaching them so clearly in the Word. And David just remembers by, you know, they finished the Old Testament. I remember he tells a story. He's like, you know, all right, like he thinks we'll come back to this tomorrow. And they're like, no, do the new. And David's like, okay, we really got to come back to this tomorrow. And so they go to sleep. They come back the next morning early, and they go all day in the New Testament. He said, I remember getting up, walking out of that room and seeing uh, little puddles of tears where brothers were just crying out to God to help the word to be enough to them. A voracious desire to see God and his word as enough, right? Now, I tell you that because that, tr- that story comes to us um, because, and David had to call it secret church. Like it comes to American church Christianity in the early 2000s. I think he's still doing it. I don't know if he is. But he said, hey, let's take six hours and he'll, he'll televise himself as he teaches, you know, and, and so people were bringing David Platt into their, into their college ministries or whatever. And college students across America were showing up. He did it at his church first. But they were showing up for six hours at a time to study the Bible. And there were a lot of people that would come because, guys, the danger of sleeping in church, <laughs> like the danger of not waking oneself up to the realities of heaven and wanting to, you know, stoke a hunger that you have and a thirst you have for righteousness. You know, the danger of falling asleep is you're going to miss out on what matters most, right? And these, these, you know, David did this, and, and it's, it's really sad that we have to tell the church, let's call it secret church, because our church is so public and so easy and so accessible and sometimes so not centered on yeah, I'm hungry for the word. Give me that. Right? It gets centered on other things. So we have a lot to learn from like the, the, the man Eutychus uh, was hoping maybe to aspire to be, but was in this moment failing to become. These men, the other ones there, they give us the normal gear of the New Testament church leader. You want to find a New Testament church leader who, who's touted as obedient in the scriptures? He is a man who is hungry for the word of God and it cannot be quenched. He wants it in his life. All the time. These men put me to shame as I put this sermon together this week. Because even as a pastor, I'll tell you, sometimes that voracious, unquenchable desire to know God and his word, sometimes it slips away from my grip. 
And so I'm not here to tell you I'm perfect in this, and I know you're not either. But what a goal, right? But this passage is also a gracious, miraculous as well, reminder uh, that if you're on your way there, yet you're young and immature, don't be upset. Look what Luke does. Luke helps this poor lad, Eutychus. So if you meet Eutychus in heaven, remember uh, verse 7, 8, 9, and 10 for what I'm about to tell you, okay? Because look what Luke does. Luke says Paul, in verse 7, prolonged his speech. You see that? In other words, translation, Paul's going on and on. He's using my wife, like this is my wife's best critique and it's good for my sermons. You know, like if Paul were married, his wife afterwards would have said, you said so many good things, brother Paul, so encouraged. You took a lot of words to say some of the things that you could have said pretty concisely, right? And and I'm thankful for that because lucid brevity is the goal. You need to be pithy and, you know, straightforward, right? And clap your hands when you, you know, get attention. And anyway, you know, you know what I'm saying? But point is, though, like Paul, Luke says, he prolonged his speech, verse 7. Look at verse 8 to help the Eutychuses. Luke says that we had a lot of lamps up there. <laughs> In other words, torches, uh, flames, uh, and, and, and it was getting really warm. So the CO2 was rising. And when the CO2 rises, you'll die. That's why you put a sensor in your house. So, you know, whatever. But before you die, you get real sleepy, all right? When the oxygen ain't as good, you just get real tired. And so poor Eutychus, you know, Luke's like, look, it was hot up there. Uh, verse 9, our boy fell asleep, Luke says, while Paul talked longer still. So it's like already wasting words, Paul. And you won't stop. Like, it's, it's 12.45, dude. Like, you know, like Cracker Barrel is like filled. You know, not really, right? Because they, they don't care about Cracker Barrel. But, but really, though, they're like, whoo. I mean, Luke is giving this guy some help of like, look, Paul went longer still. Uh, so Eutychus, uh, you know, poor thing. Verse 10, uh, this verse reads as if, he's, as if sleep were an animal hunting poor Eutychus, right? Look at verse, look at verse 10. Uh, it's, super, it's super funny. I think this is some humor from Luke. Uh, Paul went down, and, and I'm sorry, um, uh, the end of verse 9. Um, Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked uh, still longer. And being overcome by sleep, you see that overcome? It's almost like I was, he was doing the, like, like, he was doing the Bible, like, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not with you, but I'm trying thing. And then he slumped too far. And then while he was there, instead of, like, getting woke up, the animal of sleep came and it just went ahead and sent him into like REM sleep is over, right? No more dreamland. Now it's like deep sleep, deep sleep right out the window. Like he fell out of the window, a three story window, which back then, like don't think window pane like that. Think they designed these things to be huge and low to the ground because they were built them through houses like this to create drafts of wind. So like Eutychus is hot and there's this awesome breeze blowing. Paul's going longer and longer still. And I'm, I'm in there and man, like, oh, I'm there, I'm there, Paul. And then finally he wasn't there. And not only was he not there, but he wasn't here. Like he's dead. Like he's in a coma, uh, some would say, but certainly they carried him up as if he were dead. And the dude falls. Um... <laughs> I want to harp on Eutychus in this passage, but we've all been there, minus the dying and being raised back to, you know, life part. Uh, Luke encourages us, I think, by just seemingly normalizing the fact that Paul goes down with everyone and it's just like, nope, (laughs) nope, the Lord's going to bring him back, right? And that's how this reads, and it is true. And amazingly, he does. He raises Eutychus uh, back to life. The young man stands up and is fine. Can you imagine the scene? 
right? Everyone that was like note-taking up front, they're like on the grind, right? They probably don't even know. And a few who like are sitting catty corner to Eutychus, he goes out, boop, boop, you know? And I bet they were just like, oh, oh, excuse me, Paul. Eutychus just fell out the window, right? And they all run and they're all down there. All these like, you know, like these guys have seen miracles and all this stuff. And yet they're, they're the scene is they're around Paul, you know, they're around Eutychus and Paul probably is just like walking down there, you know, praying through it. And then by the miracle of God, he scoops him up like a father would, a child. And Paul's like, there's life in him. He's not dead. And then look, he gets up and what does Eutychus do? He wipes the sleep from his eyes and the blood from his nose and he goes back up there. And so the, the thing's over, right? No, look, literally, like back, uh, back to this, Paul's just like, all right, guys, open your Bibles again, back to verse 20, right? Like they just go at it some more till daybreak. And everybody's there. Now, look, the passion of these men, it's astounding, it's encouraging. Luke lets us in on how important this was by showing us a little bit of comfort. Look at verse 12 again. It says they took away, they took the youth away alive. So Eutychus is not dead, guys, right? But look at this last part. And we're not a little comforted. Do you see that? I think it's implied here that Eutychus, like he met the ultimate fate, really, of like not being as concerned as you should be about God and the things of God. And yet God brings him back from that ultimate fate, uh, the warning of sleeping on the things of God. And then He's allowed to participate for the rest of the time. And everyone agrees, if anything encourages us in, for about this moment, it's the reality that like all of us got to partake, even one who was struggling and they were not a little bit comforted could be translated as they were really, really, really encouraged. <laughs> Why? Well, I think our applications are specific for our own Lord's Day gatherings. Remember, this is the end of the, or either the beginning or the end of the seven days that they've been together. We don't really know, but we certainly know it is the Lord's day. If our first point's application lay behind, and you know, our first point of the sermon, if it was behind and kind of under reflecting on, you know, these guys having a long stint of ministry, then this portion of application, I think, lays on me and you of the beautiful little moments of resurrection that God gives on the Lord's day. Right? Now, theirs was a big moment of resurrection because it, it, someone was actually raised from the dead. And yet, it tells us in verse 12 of the comfort that's found in the idea that once it was something dead, something's alive. And, and me and you, every Lord's day, we need to think, God, just give me a, a little bit more understanding of your resurrection. You know, we're witnesses, guys, to the resurrection. Like, we gather here with hope the way that no one else can gather a group and a crowd together in hope. Our hope is real. You know, the Christian life is best lived in exhaustion. Do you believe that? You're probably tired every Lord's Day. I know I am. You're probably exhausted to come on Sundays to church. It seems like they're the hardest day sometimes uh, of all the days we have. But we can remember when we show up eager to serve others, love others, seek others' welfare, guard one another, care for one another. It's exhausting day in and day out. And yet the main goal, Jesus said, he said, it's better for you to give than to receive. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself uh, will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. All these men show up and they expect in their humility to just serve each other. And God has for them what? Resurrection, right? A reminder of resurrection. And that's what they need. That's what me and you need. 
This passage shows us that sometimes you're gonna be exhausted as well. You and I and our spiritual lives uh, are gonna be like young Eutychus. But listen, guys, God is in the business of transforming your exhaustion, the pettiness of life, the monotony, the difficulty. He's in the business of week in, week out in his church, giving you another glorious account of his resurrection. Another reminder, because you forget. And this is what he does to these men. I hope you see it, church. I hope you rest in it. Let me say this before we move on. If you're here today and you're not resting in the promises of Jesus, you fail to see the hope in this young man being brought to life again. I wonder if you have heard and responded by faith to the gospel at all. You know, the gospel is this glorious declaration of who God is. He's holy. He's just. You know, God is, God is righteous in his judgments. He has every right to send every sinner to hell. He's perfectly good for that. But he does not want the death of the wicked. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. What God wants, we learn, as revealed in Scripture, is he wants to pardon iniquity. He must punish sin. He must punish iniquity, Exodus. First John, though, is God is love. And in this is love. Not that you loved God, but that God loved you and he gave himself for you. Mankind is always raptured up in our own sins, loving our own, our own sins straight to hell. And yet the gospel is, is that God responds to man's plight by sending his own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, that Eutychus' example of resurrection in this passage, points to. See, Jesus died and rose again. And he is alive today. He sits at the right hand of his father. He is the mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. God desires that all men would come to the knowledge of the truth and know him. And you can know him today. If you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ by faith, hear me, repent of your sins and believe Jesus today. That is the hope of young Eutychus. And everybody got it in this story, right? Okay, movement three. Right, at first we were looking at this church planning conference and now falling asleep in church. Here's movement three, Paul's plans to get to Jerusalem. Uh, this is truly the most movement-driven part of our three parts this morning. Uh, as you can tell, guys, speaking up in verse 13, we just got a lot of explanation about a travel itinerary that Paul has uh, in these days. But it's not without a purpose. Though it's a short point here in closing, uh, we, must, we must make it. Look, Paul plans to obey the Lord, and Luke really shows us here the entire reason for our passage today. It's really in these verses. But here, uh, first, some details. So do you remember MapQuest? Like, I don't know if y'all remember that, but we used to like print out. It was like somewhere between giant atlases that my mom and dad used, which I just can't even imagine driving today with those. Before we had iPhones, like we would use the MapQuest, and you would literally like go point A to point B, and it would be a printout. And dude, if you miss your turn off MapQuest, I don't know what you did. Because like we recalculate now, you know, 20 minutes to get back, you know, after you fight, you know, tooth and nail about it. But like, man, MapQuest was like revolutionary because it brought you to one point to another point and it showed you like all the, all the points between. That's kind of what Luke's doing here. He's MapQuesting us from Troas uh, to where our text ends, you know, um, in, in uh, almost basically Miletus so that we can make a call north to the Ephesian elders. So like, but you're, well, right now, Troas to Miletus, why the detail? I think some important things. Um, here's Paul's planned route. So there's a plan to get to Jerusalem. It includes some stuff. Uh, 13, going ahead of the ship, 
we, this is Luke now, did you notice that we picked that back up in verse five? And I've already told you, Luke was in Philippi, but now he's rejoined this, this motley crew and uh, he's gonna be going with Paul all the way to Rome. So we, you know, uh, are uh, setting sail for uh, ASOS. They intended to take Paul aboard there, for the, so he had arranged, intending, going, uh, intending himself to go by land. So from Troas to uh, this place, Paul wants to take a 25-mile dangerous journey through mountains and land and things like that. Now, why didn't Paul just get on the boat? Granted, the boat was pretty dangerous because that, they had to go around a cape to get there uh, up in this place, and so it could have been dangerous uh, to do. But the land route was much more dangerous. Now, we don't know why Paul goes by land. Luke doesn't tell us, but he does tell us he did this. Uh, I, some suggest that he went to check on the boy, Eutychus, and to encourage the church in Troas that was kind of hosting things. He probably went to check on them. But regardless, verse 14, and when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and we went to Mytilene. Now listen, guys, Asos is a beautiful little coastal town. Just Google it. Uh, you can go there. And, and uh, it's, it's settled under a 700 foot high volcanic hill. But all around it, like when you're journeying there and, and the, the boat that stops over here overnight, uh, there are wonderful vistas, like beautiful views. So I bring this up to say that Luke may be showing us, as he gives us like a day-by-day -day itinerary at this point, and why he's doing that, he may be showing us that, that sometimes it's okay, you know, to like travel the way the world travels. They're on a Roman ship. Those things don't want to do the long journey in this area because it's dangerous to sail at night. So we go city to city and we port and we dock. But now Paul's not engaging with each city the way he was. He's on a way. And so on his way to do God's will, not out of God's will, ASOS is beautiful. <laughs> you know, uh, ASOS is an awesome place. Now, I'm not telling you to justify every vacation uh, from this Bible verse. Uh, please don't do that. But I am saying that like ASOS, when you study it, it has a culture behind it. Luke, the historian, wants to write these things into it by just giving you the name. And the reader would know. The reader would know, right? And so I'm trying to tell you, here's Paul and some of his companions on their way to something really dangerous and sad in Jerusalem for Paul, but in the meantime, getting to make some cool memories under the vista, in the vistas of, of Asos. Isn't that neat? Four, uh, 15. Sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. Uh, and the day after that, we went to uh, Miletus or Miletus. This was normal travel, as I've told you, by sea. They docked at these places day by day. Why is Luke bringing this stuff up? I'm asking that while I'm preaching this. Well, commentator Daryl Bach helped me. Uh, Chios, or Chios, actually, it's the birthplace of the famous uh, blind Greek orator, Homer. Homer was born here. Homer, who wrote the Iliad. Homer, who wrote the Odyssey. Homer, that all the pantheon of all the gods that have fallen on their faces in, dis in disrepute, that Ephesus, the whole economy of Ephesus was just ruined by Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all, right? All these gods touted in, this er in these areas for tons of times, centuries, as being the one way to live your life, right? Do all the things that these evil gods say. We're on a boat, <laughs> enjoying, just rolling into the hometown you know, across from where this person was, this famous person was born. We're getting to see at the end of this time, look, Jesus, it's no thing, right? Like we're, Jesus is Lord. He's in control. So like let Homer do Homer and deceive people for hundreds of years because the gospel came to these places, right? And it rained. 
it reigned supremely. I think Luke is giving the reader, who's maybe a Greek, right? Don't you remember Theophilus, right? A lover of God. Is that a hope? Is that actually a person, right? If it is a hope for a person reading this book, then when they see the birthplace of Homer, that their mom and dad probably raised them to say, you need to honor Zeus and honor these false gods. You need to give homage to Artemis, right? All these gods that are included in Homer's writing, that they'll say, look at them just passing by. Most people went to those places to do, you know, like to go and like a Muslim would go to, you know, the, the Mecca and spend time there thinking about their false God. Most would go to Asos and these places that were just passing by and they would spend some time there worshiping, seeing the sights, right? The Christian nationalist goes to Washington, D.C. and he stays, you know, four weeks, right? And he's just there doing what? Oh man, look at all of our gods, little G, right? But, but, not, but not Christians, I think Luke's doing this quickly for reasons like that. Uh, and if you don't think that's true, he also includes Samos, which is just another stopover. But guess who was there? That's the home of the famous Greek philosopher Pythagoras. Probably heard of him. He's a big deal. Luke is showing at the end of this idea of look at the gospel's completion and watch the gospel just go past all these ideas. <laughs> I just think it's really cool. Uh, these were premier cities, fun stopovers, famous places, but not for Paul and his crew. One day, one day, they're moving on. If you served as a missionary overseas for a short-term trip, you know what I'm talking about. It's like going to the airports that are on the way to where you're trying to go to share the gospel. Like I can tell you stories about us going to LAX on the way to China. And LAX was awesome. I got to eat an Outburger for the first time, right? I got to hang out in LA just for about nine hours. But you know what I really cared about? I wanted to get on that plane and I wanted to get to China so I could tell people about Jesus. I have friends that, you know, they would stop over in London yeah, go see Big Ben while you have a layover. Oh, it's pretty cool to like do this thing, whatever. But we really need to get somewhere. We have a plan. And Paul had a plan. And so these stopovers are not, uh, you know, what most would do. I think it's because of the gospel. Verse 16, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus. And this is Luke's main point. You need to catch this. So that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, through our study, we know that Paul has less than five weeks if we study history. He's got about five weeks from that holiday, Pentecost. Um, we believe this is in the spring of about 55 or to, through 57 AD. So it's one of those years. That's what we think it is. So he sails past the city of Ephesus. Now, guys, we spent three weeks preaching in Ephesus. Paul was there for almost three years doing ministry. But he chooses to go past them and to the city just beneath them. And he's going to call the elders to come to him instead of him going there. Now, why is that? And why is Luke doing that, telling us that? Because the emphasis, Paul knows I'm gonna get distracted and I'm not gonna make my time to get where God has called me to be for Pentecost. And so if possible, it's kind of a Lord willing, right? If possible, he wants to be there on Pentecost. Now ask yourself, why would Paul wanna take a bunch of pastors from churches that were planted with a bunch of money to a, the church, the main kind of sending church, if you will. Now granted, it'd be Antioch who sent them. But where did Antioch come from? From Jerusalem, right? Why would Paul be so burnt, uh, you know, urgent to get there on Pentecost, right? The feast of ingathering, of harvest, of grain, of the final time uh, to celebrate that we have this great harvest. See, you already got it, don't you? The idea of this, I, this travel, this itinerary hope is Paul wants to get there. And when all the Jews that haven't believed in Jesus or certainly the ones who have 
when they gather and assemble in sort of uh, uh, Solomon's portico like they were doing in the beginning of this book, and they all stand up and say the gospel is for all who would repent and believe, they're going to have in the crowd Sopater, the Berean, and men from Thessalonica, and guys from Asia who have now been the full grain harvest that Jesus had seen when he was on the earth. You remember Jesus' words? The fields are what? White for harvest. So pray to the Lord of the harvest. For the, for the laborers are few. Pray that God may bring them in. Paul sees, I'm going to get there by Pentecost because I'm going to have the biggest humble brag on Jesus that I could ever have, right? Y'all are all gathered for this festival. God has already made the great harvest. He's making it. Will you be, a, will you be someone who's caught up in it? That's the fulfillment of the hope of, of this whole plan that Paul has. Um, let me close with this. Such reflections in the Christian life should give us hope. My prayer for you now as we then sing in Christ alone is that the Lord would grant to you and me such hope on a regular basis like Paul had. I pray the first point for us, hope. I pray that we would have hope when we plan, you know, uh, and when we consider you know, the conference of our lives in Christ. Like what all came together to make you a Christian here today, or if you believe the gospel I just preached just now, you know, believing today. But, 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 but if you are a Christian, think of the conference of your own life that brought you here, like these men did. Want that, brothers and sisters. Secondly, may you have hope to experience little resurrections on the Lord's day like the story of Eutychus should encourage you to do. I'm going to pray that we would have that kind of hope. And then lastly, pray for the hope that when we plan, like Paul makes a plan in our last movement, may it be always to serve gospel first. Sure, you may see some beautiful things along the way, but do not overlook your main mandate. This is the hope we have. And it was the hope of the transition of Acts 20. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing. Father, wake us up. We're sleepers um, Father, worse than Eutychus, we fall asleep spiritually in our own lives. Father, we sleep at the wheel of our faith. And God, we thank you that it's not shipwrecked, that we're not wrapped around a tree of idolatry or sin, proving ourselves as to be not among your people. Thank you, God, that you have stayed us and steadied us and kept us according to your word. God, wake us up like these men were awakened to the voracious hunger and thirst for righteousness that you said people that belong to your kingdom have. Father, give us such a love for the brethren that we can envision a seven-day stay like they had in the future, or we can reflect with hope on having experienced some of that ourselves in the past. Father, grant us grace in times like this where we gather around your word week to week. Father, as we sing again and as we see your word in the elements, Father, hear our confession. Lord, let it be true today. and Let us join in it together with hope. Father, may we understand that you, uh, God, are in control of all of our plans, and yet we're still to make them. We make them, you establish our steps. So God, help us to plan like Paul did. Help us to have a primacy in the way we think about moving forward in this life, one that serves the gospel and for your glory first, for our fellow man second. And Father, may we remember that if we do that to the point of exhaustion where we got nothing else for ourselves, May we remember you said greatest is the one in the kingdom of heaven who is least here. So help us to be exhausted all for your glory. 
We do all this according to your word, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.